You got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. None other than Tony Hawk, Todd Peterson, Jesse Isler, everybody. Thanks for being on, Jordan. The League presents Electric People. What's up, Electric People? Welcome back. I have one of the most important people on the planet here today. Have you ever been called that before? Never before, thank you. This is Tim Ballard. <laughs> so, uh, Tim is the founder and operator of Operation Underground Railroad. Um, so, I, man, thanks for being here today. Oh, thank you. You've got a crazy schedule. Yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> it's been hard to line this up, but uh, I guess I'll tell the story that you don't even know exists yet. You ready? All right, yeah. You didn't know you were going to get this no, today. I didn't know this. So, um, I became pretty familiar with your work. I don't even know where. Maybe like church publications or articles or something like that. And I was asked uh, a couple years ago, just in conversation, who I looked up to, who a couple of my heroes were. And I said, or maybe the question was, you know, if you could have lunch with somebody, who would it be? And I was like, that guy with like the blue eyes that's like liberating. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah dude. So nice of you. No, well, I, I believe in your work. I think Thank what you're you. doing is the most important thing that, that people could do. So, um, but I really thought that because I was like, that's a person who, you know, the name of the show is Electric People. We talk to people that are making a real difference in their field and the standouts, right? And so as I started learning about your story and learning about kind of what drew you into it, um, I hoped for the opportunity to meet and share it. So um, randomly, I was in Salt Lake City maybe two years ago, and I was on the phone with my wife, and you walked right by. Now I know that you're constantly <laughs> at the airport. And I was I, like, I lived at the second home. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I was talking to my wife. I was like, hey, there's that guy that I like look up to. <laughs> I don't know how often you get fanboyed, but you're getting it right now. <laughs> so um, then I was working with your team to try to set this, this interview up. And they've been super awesome and accommodating. But your schedule's literally crazy. It is. And then we ran into each other in another airport. That's the thing. Like, yeah. So then, I live at all airports. That's so. right. So then I'm at LAX <laughs> on the phone again with my wife. <laughs> And you walked by, and I was like, I'm taking it this time. <laughs> so that was where we actually met, but it yeah. started years before yeah, that, man. Wow. So cool. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Oh, it's an honor. So for you guys that don't know, um, Tim has a personal mission to, uh, to end human slavery, to end trafficking. It's, right. a, it's a big, bold goal, but you guys are doing it, and it's amazing. So why don't you tell us how you got into the whole thing? Sure, yeah. So first, the, the problem, you know, people, I think, would be shocked to know that we're talking about 30 million plus people enslaved today. People who don't control their own bodies. Um, and about 25, 30% of those are children. So we're talking millions and millions of children. There's never been a time in history where more people have been enslaved than, than right now. And our focus is to find those children. It's sex slavery, it's slave labor, and it's organ harvesting. And uh, I got into this work uh, accidentally, really. Um, in the early 2000s, I was a special agent for the US government. But I was tracking down terrorists and doing some, some uh, narco investigations. I was on the border where I wanted to be, and I was loving life. And Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're kind of, we've had a couple like Navy SEALs on this show. Mm -hmm. And something about you special ops people, if I could put you in a box, is you want to be where the action is. Like, you love the fight. So did you just always want to be, like, chasing bad guys and things like that? I did, what? yeah, I did. I, I, my first job after, after grad school, I went to the CIA, and um, I was mostly doing desk work. And I really wanted to get out in the field, and and I was there during 9/11. Oh wow! And what happened was um, one of the terrorists, Mohammed Atta, came across the border, the southern border, Calexico, California, into 
uh, from Mexico where he staged, and from there he launched one of the attacks on the on the on the towers. And so I thought, who I want to be down yeah. there. I was doing terrorism work, mostly analytical stuff at the CIA, and I said I want I want to be on the ground, looking for those guys, and I want to go to that border where Muhammad Atta crossed. And I speak Spanish, mm-hmm. and I thought that's what I want to do. So at the in the wake of 9/11, they created the Department of Homeland Security um, to to combat the threat coming in from outside. Uh, into the homeland, so I got I got into the to that agency, one of the first in, uh, and I started like a literal those. guard at the door. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do: investigate cases dealing with 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 terrorism. My first job was um, my post was at the border. They thought I was nuts. You know, I yeah. I, I, went, I I said I want to go to the border. I said no one wants to go to the border. Everyone's trying to get off the border. You're like we have they're like we have tons of openings actually. Yeah. Which one would you <laughs> it's like? Cr- you it's know? crazy work. You know, it's it never stops. The borders, you know, bad things are happening. And then I was there for six months, had my office at the port of entry. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out my office window into Mexico, and I'm just loving life. We're crawling through tunnels. We're investigating these cases. And then only six months into that first post, I got called in, and my boss said, hey, we're starting a new child trafficking case. And I was like, like the whole world, like, what's child trafficking? What year was this? This was probably 2000, 2001, 2002. When they called you in. Okay. Yeah, like, what, I said, what's, what's child trafficking? I mean... You're like, people it, do that? It wasn't like, on anyone's radar, really, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was way bigger already than anyone understood. It was just in the underbelly of everything. It was so quiet. Um, and so they put me into this group, and I, I took the challenge to, to do it. I was scared to death. I, I didn't know what this was. No one really knew what it was. And it honestly was worse than I thought. I mean, we, I remember the first, the first time I sat down at a computer, and they said, this is your first case. We just pulled this stuff from this guy's car. We don't know who he is, but we think he had kids with him and whatnot. And I'm looking through these files, and it was these children just being brutally raped. So you're, you take this job, and they just have to expose you to this. That's, that's the crazy thing. And I, I told you this before we started rolling the camera, that in preparation for this interview, I didn't know how much we can talk. And so I've been listening to your podcast, and we're talking like this. You do it. Like, is that just kind of how the field is, where they sit you down and say, hey, listen, this is the world that exists? So you know what you're getting into, or how does no, that go? No, see, it's 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 funny. There's no way to prepare someone for 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 that, for what I, for like this 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 moment where I'm looking at these kids. There's nothing anyone could have taught me because let me tell you what happened. These kids look like my children. They 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 look they have blonde hair and they have blue eyes and they just look just like my kids, and they're about the same age. These little boys and they're just being brutally raped. And I remember falling to my knees, dry heaving into the trash can. And the world was spinning, and I thought, and I just got into my car. I drove to my kid's school, checked him out, brought him home, and just held him and cried like a baby. And my they wife have said, no idea what's going on. They're like, "Dad, what was going on?" Like, yeah. And I was like, I don't, "How can I do this? This is this is what it is." Um, Why did they ask you to do it? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I'd only been in the agency for six months, and uh, my boss sat me down and he pitched this idea, and I said, "It is the one position that you can refuse." Oh really? Yeah, they, the other ones are given by a sign. Yeah, if, if they tell you you're going to do narco, you're going to do. You can't really. But mm-hmm. if you, you know, and, and my boss said, "Look, I, I didn't know this. He was a new boss. I didn't even know him. I didn't know he knew anything about me." And he said, "The reason I'm asking you because I asked the same question. I said, I've only been here for six months. This is like a super difficult assignment. Why don't you give it to someone more seasoned?" And he said to me, "It was so bizarre, totally unexpected." He he said, "Well, I happen to know that you're a, a, a person of faith." that's a big part of your life. I said, yeah, that's true. So you're, you're a praying man. I said, yeah, that's true. He says, well, 
let me tell you something. Only a praying man is going to make it through this. Wow. And, and, and that's all preparation I got. They sent me to undercover school. Because um, what happened was the, 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 the laws changed in 2006. So I'm doing these mostly child pornography cases. I finally kind of got used to it. I, I steeled myself against it, you know. Um, I had to, we, I had to get, so we, they make us see a shrink. That's by policy. Yeah, you would think, like, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, because you have to be exposed to everything. You don't, you don't, I mean, you have to know what evidence exists and all that stuff. Oh, you, right? have, to, you have to be an expert on that case and everything that's happened. And yeah. you see the child, you're interviewing the child. And, and so they, they, so I trained myself to not, because what I was doing was after that first experience, I had a little PTSD from it. And it was just like every time I'd see a child victim, I'd see my own children's faces kind of superimposed on how could you on not? those kids you know and it, and it destroyed me it almost destroyed me um until i could figure out how to pull it away uh, later on um i end up bringing that back um which you, you don't forget to ask me about it later because okay. I, I was a different it's once we get into the our part uh, i'm along for the ride man but, so yeah don't, don't forget that question because it's interesting what happened where i i, I embraced that concept mm-hmm. of making these kids my kids oh okay but but to, but to kind of answer your other question, so they, in 2006, the laws change, okay? And it, it was a, a enormous what, what, what change came upon us uh, because what happened was for the first time, the U.S. government was allowed to send their agents overseas to investigate potential American pedophiles who were raping children overseas and then being able to hold them accountable there as if they committed it on our soil. Wow. It's a very unique crime. You, yeah. you won't find anything else like it. Frankly, it's probably not constitutional, but no one is going to challenge it because right. it, it's such a badass law. You know, mm-hmm. we need yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, uh, so anyway, we um, so they send me down to cover school, but we're all still new in this. And my first scenario, they give you these scenarios. They put you in a studio, kind of like this one, right? And mm-hmm. you're sitting face to face with a role player. Now, this guy is one of the top undercover operators in the United States. Been doing it for years, and he's playing the role of a general smuggler. But, but for, the, for the point of the scenario, he doesn't know what i am been told to ask him for. Okay. Because the whole idea is I've yeah, got to get, get it out of him. Um, he's a general smuggler, but I'm going to have to get him to bring me children. And they have cameras everywhere. It's, you're sweating, and they're going to critique everything you're doing. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to determine whether or not you can be an undercover operator. Mm-hmm. So I sit down with this guy, and my stomach's just churning. I just want to throw up, and I'm, I start bringing up the subject of children, right? So we get like a couple minutes into that conversation and that guy says out of roll, which means cut, like usually if mm-hmm. there's a problem, he says out of roll, he's turning kind of ashen color and he stands up and he says, I've got a daughter. So you can't ask me this. And he looks to the, to the instructor. He's like, what is this? Some kind of joke? I'm not going to talk about this. And he walks off the set. This, okay. is the, this is the expert-like interrogator guy? This is the, one of the top undercover operators. Okay. But the point I'm making is not that the U.S. government didn't have the best. They did. Is that nobody in the early 2000s, there was no curriculum. Yeah, you were right for, at the very beginning. For, yes, for infiltrating because we were just learning how, I mean, again, go back to, you can Google in 2000, 2003, 2005, child trafficking, you know, modern-day slavery. Nothing's going to come up. It wasn't something anyone was talking about. The media wasn't touching it. And so we were kind of on the cutting edge. Um, and it was basically just figured out. And then they gave me the assignment, you go overseas and you're going to go uh, find the American pedophiles who are hurting kids. I said, what do I do? Figure it out. Just figure it out. You're an undercover operator. Go down there, be a pedophile, be a trafficker, be whatever wow. you need to be. Find the children and then find the Americans. 
And the problem that no one kind of saw coming was uh, I could always find the children, right? But only maybe 20% of the time or less did I have the opportunity to find the American. And so by law, no one's fault on the US side. By law, if I couldn't find that American, I had to come home. Well, the problem is I've made myself the bait. So we work with these host governments like in Colombia, Haiti, Mexico, and they're saying, you can't leave. I said, I can't, I have to leave. The United States, we're the number one consumers of child sex, child rape videos in the world. Wow. That's why these host governments need our faces. They need an American or Western looking face to infiltrate the belly of the beast. Mm-hmm. We can get in 10 times faster than they can. But then I get myself in there and I was like, you know, this is gonna require more than the law lets us give. And we'd have to come out. And that's what led to Operation Underground Railroad when I got too close and I couldn't say no. And I had to Jeez. quit to stay in the case. Well, and I happen to know too from, uh, for our listeners, um, Tim has a podcast called Slave Stealer. Awesome name, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> it's, it's well produced, it's great. And uh, in preparation for this, I got most of my tears, literally this morning on the airplane, like listening to it, like trying to hold it back. Like <laughs> it was heavy and it was great, yeah. but I appreciate the, the, the rawness of it and everything like that. But I happen to know that your wife, was hesitant about you taking the role, but then ended up being one of your main supporters That's in the right. role. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, so, you know, we, we had agreed, both my wife and I, that we wouldn't do, I think we had one day or a half a day in the academy on child crimes. And it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Again, it was nothing compared to what it actually is yeah. in the real world. But even that training session, I came home like, you won't believe what they were telling us. And she said, you will never work that kind of, kind of criminal investigation. Just worried about what it would do to you as a person yeah, and your soul exactly. and your mind. Exactly. You have these little stuff. children at home and it's yeah. like, what's gonna, what could corrupt your mind? Mm-hmm. You can become cynical. Yeah. I mean, there's a real reason they yeah. send you to, to, to see a, a mental help. By, by policy, once a year, you got to get reassessed because it is, it is nuts. Yeah. You can't believe, I won't even try to go there, but except to say people wouldn't believe that he was even physically possible or that a human being could do this to a child. You would never in your wildest dreams be able to dream up what is actually happening to these kids. And, and there's nothing to prepare you for that. But even that training, I went home after that day of training and she said, you are not gonna do that. I said, I'm, I agree, I won't. Mm-hmm. So when my boss asked me to do it, I told, I, I told him I don't think I can do this. Even after he said, you're a man of faith and we need you. And, and, and I said, I don't think I can do this. And so I went home and talked to my wife and she says, there's no way you're doing it. You go home, you go back to work and tell him no. And I was, I was concerned about telling no to this guy. He's like 6'4". He's been on the border his whole life. Yeah, just you know, hard. Rugged, yeah. yeah. He's got a big white hook mustache. Yeah. Wears cowboy boots to work, you know, like. The guy. I didn't want to tell him yeah. no. Um, but that's what we had to do. And the next morning, I'm super nervous about telling this guy no. And my wife comes in full tears. Um, she comes into the bathroom and um, I'm getting ready and she's, and she's crying and she, and she didn't sleep much that night. And she's it's probably mutual, right? Probably both of you. Oh yeah, yeah. Me because I just didn't know how to say no to the, to yeah. this guy I was scared of, and my wife um, because she was questioning the decision. And she said, um, she said, for the very reason I thought that we couldn't do this, which is because we have kids and what might happen. That is the reason that you need to do this because we have kids, because we know what a childhood looks like and is mm-hmm. supposed to be like. And if it's true that there's millions of children forced into this, how dare we say no? And so that was, so I said yes, right? And then, 
And then I got into something that, like I said, if I had known, oh, yeah. if I had known what it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it. But once you know it and once you're in it, you can't walk away. So it's yeah, kind that's of- that's what I was going to say is once you know it exists, it's got to be really conflicting. But if you have the skill set and you have the awareness, it's almost like it shows you, you know? Yeah, you can't, you can't walk away once you- and, and, you know, through all the bitterness, when you liberate, when you're part of liberating a child, that is- there's nothing in the world like that. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, you'll go through hell 10 times over to let that happen once. Yeah. Well, you speak from experience. Um, so you got thrown into it pretty quickly. After you decided to say yes, um, talk about the case. I, I, I don't remember his name, but the case, the first one that came to you with the necklace and all that. Oh, so so that, that case was... Was that um, not the first one? It was the first time that I had seen an actual child from one of the videos. Mm. At first, it was just all these videos. We were getting all the end users. That's mostly what we were doing is, you know, getting these American pedophiles, which was very satisfying. So you're finding the people that are consuming the content. Yeah, the consumer. Because that's our job is to find yeah. the danger in the United States. And you got to get these guys off the street. They're abusing children. They're a huge threat. So that was the focus. But most of the kids that you'd see in the videos, like the one I described when I drove to pick my kids up, uh, those kids are very difficult to find. Uh, often they're overseas. There's no you're not like for documented kids. and things like right, that. They right? Hide, yeah. They hide where they're at, and so it's hard to know. Where, and so that it's haunting. You, where are those kids now? You know, and, and you, you live with that. But this was a case where there's a little boy, five years old, being brutally raped in these videos. So we knew who he was, and we ended up getting information that we were able to apprehend his captor at the port of entry in Mexico, crossing the border, and when we when we got on him and pulled him out of the car, the little boy was in the back of the van. And what he, was he stopped for? Like, you, do you know what you're looking for at the border? Are yeah, you there yeah. looking around, or did someone just say, "Hey, check this one out"? Or something? yeah, it was in this case, it was a it was a customs uh, official who, um, like a spiritual gift. I'll be honest with you. Like, he there was no absolute reason why. He said something just told me. Send this guy to secondary. And he's an American coming back. He's an American from coming back. Yeah, he shows his passport and he said, "There's something wrong with this guy. Something's wrong." No and, other way to explain it. Yeah, and then, and then they they send him over to secondary. They pull up in a bag all these VHS tapes of his homemade porn with children. He just he happened was, to be carrying. He it. was kidnapped. Yeah, it was a collection. These guys are collectors. They're 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 so obsessed. They're so sick in the mind. They can't leave their child porn for very long. Yeah. So they, back in the day, back in those days too, there wasn't it wasn't the, the dark. Couldn't like upload it. Yeah, it was so, hard. Yeah. You, you carried you carried a bag of VHS tapes, you know. Um, Jeez. This guy was kidnapping children from Mexico, bringing them to San Bernardino, California, not far from where you live, mm-hmm. and he had this home. And inside the home, he had closed circuit cameras, like recording everything in the bathrooms, everything else, and then the homes had a a haunting, creepy kind of combination of pornography and toys. The idea being this is how you desensitize a child. Have, like kids' toys. They, yeah. Like, they have to desensitize the children, right? groom them. So you bring them in, give them toys, and show them some porn. Make it normal for them. And then, then you show them child porn. And then sometimes you give them drugs. And you do different things. These kids get rewired into thinking that what they're supposed to do is have sex with, with adult men. You know. So, that's what, so this guy had these videos, and that's how we knew about this little boy. Uh, but the moment for me, the pivotal moment during that operation was kind of as the dust was settling, this, this five-year-old boy ran to me and um, he uh, just grabbed me, just held me and was shaking. 
This is like in an interrogation room or something like or at the border. This is right when we something. got him right when we got him into safety away from him yeah. and into a into a safe room. And I came in to learn about who he was. And he just ran to me and just grabbed me and was shaking at five. And I didn't know if he was gonna speak English or Spanish. And for some reason his perfect English kind of shocked me and made it even like more because mm-hmm. I instantly I thought, why do you know English? Because this guy kidnapped you when you were like an infant. You know, that's the only way. You shouldn't know English. You know it because you've been abused. So, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, it yeah. just registered with me, like, and I just started crying. He was crying, and I start crying, and I and he finally steps back, and he just says, very simply, he says, in perfect English, he says, I don't belong here. And it just crushed me. Because I could look into that kid's eyes, and I knew the statistics. I could multiply that by six to eight million children in the world who could also say, I don't belong here. Lucky for this kid, he was t- saying it to a law enforcement unit that was getting him out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we got him out, and this is when he gives me this necklace that becomes um, kind of a very important symbol for me. Um, it was a necklace his sister, who had also been kidnapped and, and abused by this guy, that she had bought for him at a nickel and dime store. It was a little um, dog tag plastic necklace, and it said, Man of God with a scripture on it, a biblical scripture. And he said, here. And I said, no, no, this is yours. He says, no, you have to have this. Um, and I said, okay. Like a, he wouldn't, he also gave me a little matchbox car that he had. <laughs> and so I put it away and yeah. um, I'll come back to that, st- that story, but fast forward a little bit when I'm grappling with the idea of what to do with these cases that I can't work. But if I pull away, the case will fall apart because yeah. I've made myself the bait. So this one you can work because... It's yeah, an American, this is, this is caught before. on American soil. Yeah. Okay. But I want to fast forward about the necklace. Yeah, yeah. And I'll get back to the... Because sure. I'm still an American agent in this case, right? But later on, um, when I'm thinking about quitting, and it's, it's, it seems unfathomable that I could do this or would do this. How am I going to make... You know, how am I going to survive, you know, the nonprofit? And my son, who was about the same age as that little boy was when we rescued him, had found the necklace. It was so providential. And he brought it to me and he says, Dad, what is this? I'm like, oh, at first I just kind of dismissed it. Oh, it's a necklace. This kid gave me that we helped. And he's like, oh, tell me about it. And I couldn't tell him very much. You know, I'm like, How, where do you find that? You know, mm-hmm. he just kind of had it. <clears throat> and he said, that's cool that he put your name on it. I said, no, he didn't put my name on it. He's like, yeah, your name's right here on the necklace. And I'm like, give it to me. What are you talking about? I'm flip it over. The, the biblical scripture was Timothy 6 11. And like when I saw my name on the necklace, it was, I thought back to that case. I thought back to how I felt when he said, I don't belong here. And that was the turning point for me to the courage. It gave me the courage. I needed to quit and start Operation Underground Railroad. Wow. So that necklace now has a, we actually made replicas of it and we've given them to people yeah. as a reminder. Um, but back to that case. So I, I, I thought I was going to quit, honestly. During- that has happened to you. I don't know if it does now, but it probably happened to you all the time, didn't it? Like, did you have those moments where you're like, I just don't know if I can do it. Oh yeah, and this was one. Of, this was the first moment that I truly believed I was going to quit after this, this case. So this case was 2006. So I I, I left in 2013. So I kind of jumped kind of mm-hmm. quite a bit. But 2006 was this case. It was July 4th, 2006. I'll never forget because we liberated the compound with 12 children who he had, he had kept in there. We got enough information from the van that night when we pulled the little boy out to get a search warrant to raid his house and compound in San Bernardino. And that's when we identified... That trip, and I know you're probably used to this by now, but literally that's an hour and 15 minutes from 
where my kids are right this second. Yes. It just, that thought that, you know what I mean? That it's, that's here and you have so many questions that you probably get all the time. Like, how did nobody know? How did this, how, who is this person? How does this evil exist? How, yes. you know what I mean? And like this, you, you hit the nail on the head with that comment. It's this underbelly that lives right around us. And, and that's the part that I couldn't deal with, mm-hmm. that very thing. Yeah. In fact, I came home from that case and I'm driving home and uh, I decide I'm gonna quit. Like I'm done, I, I can't do this anymore. And uh, I was playing this mind game with myself. There's two exits in El Central California on the border where I live. One was 4th Street where the, chi- where the kid was still rehabbing and we were trying to find his parents and and everything else. Um, I was supposed to go see him again and kind of do another interview with him. I told myself, if I get up on 4th Street and go see the kid, I'll stay. But if I skip the pat- the, this off-ramp and I go to the Dogwood exit, which is where my home is, the very next exit, small town, that means that's my sign to the heavens and everyone else, I've qu- I'm quitting. Well, and you're driving, right? So you're just like having this conversation yeah, with Yeah, it's total, total like- internal struggle, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this song comes on by a, a, an artist named Peter Brian Holt. Um, who I listened to in college. I was listening to his, his, his CD, his CDs back in those CD, days. CD, at least it wasn't a tape, right? Still doing CD, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. 2006. And it was this song that came on called Lullaby about a, a, like a parent figure who's helping a child. It was like, oh God, why, like, okay, I get it. So I turn off on 4th Street and, and, off, and off we go to, um, and I stayed in it. But I went home that night still struggling. Um, and I, and I walked through the doors and it was that point you just made. I saw my children who were happy and healthy and running around and I thought this kid was being raped miles from my home. I just, we just found 12 kids, not you know a, a hundred and some odd miles from my home. It's everywhere and my, yet these kids are so happy and something happened, I had like a breakdown. I remember my knees gave out, I fell to the ground. Uh, my wife thought I was having a heart attack. She ran to me and she's like cradling me like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I was having like a PTSD attack or something. Yeah. I was just like a mess. Yeah. And, and um, she calmed me down and, and, I, and I said, I think you have to quit. And she's like, you can't. She's like, I know how, I just witnessed how hard it is for you, but how's that pain compared to that child that you just told me about? How would you compare your pain to his? And I was just like, oh my gosh. I jumped up, you know, punched myself in the head. and like, get back to work, mm-hmm. you know? And, and this is what we tell people all the time. We need help. This is, problem is way too big for any one agency, one government. But people don't get involved because of what I just said. Yeah, I'm they sure. They don't want to shed the innocence. They don't want to do what you're doing. I mean, it's hard to talk about this. Most people don't want to do it. They'll turn off the podcast. They'll turn off the radio. Glenn Beck tells me every time I come on the show, he, he, he sees his ratings plummet. But he's Because they don't. They, it's, it's, people are like, I, ah, nah, nah, nah. I don't. Because yeah. they, they see their children. I'm talking about a five-year-old boy. Well, someone's got, how many people have five-year-old boys and girls? And they're like, I can't listen to this. But the problem is this, if we don't listen to it, if we don't shed a little innocence, these kids are stuck in hell. But by engaging, even just hearing the stories and sharing them, that's the solution that's gonna end this for them. So we, we just plead with people, like, be brave. I know it sucks, it hurts hard, but engage anyway. The, uh, the crazy thing is um, that song, uh, on your show, it plays while while you talk about it. That's and right. Yeah. The song, the lyrics, something like he won't come around here anymore. Yeah, they won't come around here no more. The monsters, yeah. the evil, yeah. they won't come around here no more. 
what kind of a sign more clear than that, right? Like <laughs> it was, it was like ah, curse the heavens! I like know. now I have to go. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I'm grateful, and the planet should be grateful for your courage to follow because I'm sure that maybe, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you're like, I'm just a guy, man. I didn't ask for any of this, like. But um, do you feel yourself? Do you do you feel a responsibility to do it? You 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 mentioned that it feels like a calling that you were that you were called to do it, maybe uniquely qualified to do it. Do you feel, um, do you feel that responsibility? Do you feel like, if not me, who? Absolutely, oh, well, I, I absolutely feel like it's a calling. And, and um, you know, it's funny, when that calling really manifested itself, where I really had to kind of put my money where my mouth was, you know, was in, in December of 2013, when I was gonna quit the, my job to go do these cases that were pending that I had to leave because they were outside of the jurisdiction of the United States. Now is the real question, how committed are you really? Yeah. Right? And I wavered like crazy. Um, uh, well, it's scary for a lot of reasons. Financially, you have a family, psychologically, <laughs> spiritually, but temporally, you got to pay for this. Oh, yeah. Right? And then it's like, do I become like this vigilante? Do I make it a business? Like, I can't imagine the conflict. Yeah, I had six kids at the time. and At the I, time, how many do you have now? I have nine now. You have nine kids. Yeah, we adopted two, and then and then another one decided to Jeez. join our family. Yeah. Hey, that's an accomplishment <laughs> in and of itself. I have five, and I thought, okay, all right, there's there's six was here. our cap, but somehow, you know, and we can get into that story about how the two kids Let's we adopted just do them all. were kids that yeah. were rescued. Actually, wow. We can get into that story, but um, that was the story. That was the reason. That was the final case actually that led me to those children that compelled me to quit my job. Um, but. Um, it, but to answer the other question before we get mm-hmm. into that, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is this, if, if this is my calling, I guess they have to do it. But my wife taught me something so important. So I'm basically in the fetal position in 2013, in December, okay? Someone introduced me to the little pill called Xanax. And I, I, I had to partake from time to time. Yes. And that during that month, like, I was like <laughs> losing my mind because I'm like, no one's, you know, they're telling me I can't privatize the rescue of children. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going from the most secure job in the world, a federal employee, to like literally the most insecure financial position you can think of starting a nonprofit. That people don't want to talk Only about. Only a few percent of, right? you know, yeah, tiny percent of those actually become viable after a year, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and then, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about hell. Yeah, come join me in hell. Let's all talk. Like, it's just like yeah, all the odds were against me, right? And, um, but we had had a series of experiences, my wife and I, that were very spiritual where we felt the calling. What's your wife's name? Catherine. Catherine. You're cool, Tim. I think Catherine is a real rock star. 100%. I think she's the one. No, right? 100%. Like, we, OUR would never have it, would have, it would have fallen apart in December of 2013 before it even got started. Yeah. Um, because that's, you know, I, I, um, I said, I told her I'm not gonna do it. The money started coming in. I, got, I convinced Glenn Beck to go on the radio and make a huge risk. To, and, and, and all his lawyers were saying, don't do this. You're crazy. These guys haven't proven themselves. Well, and Glenn's not not scared of a little controversy, right? He's not, He's not he, scared well, of a little a little well, opinion sharing. I was in a room and, with Glenn and his attorney. His, his attorney was berating him, saying, "If you even think about doing this, the liability on all of us." And da da da. da you're a broadcaster. You're you, you know you're you're you're. This a, is why you're in the room. Oh yeah, right in front of me. But here's a funny thing. I'm listening to the attorney going. Yeah. He's right. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing he's saying that's incorrect. Wow. And yet I still feel it. And Glenn looked at me. I didn't know Glenn that well then. We're, we're super close friends now, but I didn't know him that well then. And he just looked at me and he said, he says, I cannot and I will not go to my maker and have to report back on this day 
and tell him I did nothing. And he's, he, 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 he's, I'm getting chills just thinking about this. It was this pivotal moment. He took the, a paper off the desk. We were at the Grand America Hotel in downtown Salt mm-hmm. Lake. He took stationery off. I have his framed. He signed his name. He says, whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. Signed Glenn Beck. Gave it to me. So there's nothing the Lord would want me to do more than this. And, and I framed that, and that was like my only hope. So Glenn starts raising money, and that's when he became real. This is, this is now December 2013. It was all fun and games before the money started coming in. Because when the money came in, it was like, so there's enough to do like two operations, but not enough to live on. But now I have to go because Glenn just told millions of people that I'm going. Yeah. And that's when my wife said to me, stop. Like I was having a breakdown. And she said, stop. She's like, what do you see before you? What, what paths do you see? I see the government path, I told her, right here. And, and this is a lesson that I think applicable to anybody mm-hmm. in, in any field. She, I said, I got this path that's, that's the government. I see my pension at age 50. Yeah. I'm free. This is it's beautiful. This this OUR path, this Operation Underground Railroad craziness, is all dark and scary, and I don't want to go down it. That's what I see. And she's like, okay, stop. And harking back to Glenn's words a few months earlier, she says, imagine you're sitting before your maker. You're sitting before the almighty God at the end of your life. And he says, did I tell you to do this? I, what would you say? I said, I have to say yes, because I knew that. Yeah. We had a series of experiences that said that's what's happening. Like things I couldn't deny, like that powerful. And then she says, fine. And then when he says, and did you do it? And picture saying, no, I didn't. I chose the easy path. I chose the government. I chose the government. <laughs> so Jeez. never choose the government. So, <laughs> so, I, um, so then she said, okay. She was brilliant. And she goes, now go back to that fork in the road. What do you see? And it was just like, I almost like physically could see it, right? In my mind's eye. Like all of a sudden that, that path of the government looked dark and scary as heck. Wow. And then the other path, I still couldn't see, but it was light and warm, and I could see two steps. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's it. you got to find your calling, and, and, and that's what you got to stick to because that's going to bring you the, the, the full happiness in the end. It's a very, so. like, spiritual experience because even, you know, I think to, like, there's scripture that talks about making decisions and having your, the one that's not clear or the wrong one become foggy. Like, that's... Yeah. But, but still, it required you to walk into the darkness. Walk it did. Into okay. the we still, look, when we quit, we had enough money to do the two operations that were most pending, that were most concerning to me. Um, the, the, the one, most important, well, there was two. Um, this one in Colombia. I, I had, in fact, um, Fox is making a movie. They made a movie with Jim Caviezel. Do you know about this? Um, I think I've heard of the it. The feature film that comes out next year that's already filmed. Um, it stars Jim Caviezel, who plays me. Yeah, I've read on this. Mira Servino. I'm trying not to weird you out, but I know a lot more about you than okay, I think good, I do. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it's good. <laughs> you did your research. It's awesome. So the, there's a movie. Little did I know that there's going to be a movie with my favorite actor. I, I picked him. He's oh, favorite, really? He's my favorite actor. Count of Monte Cristo, best movie yeah. ever. So, um, yeah, you can't, you can't pick this stuff, right? You <laughs> no, can't. no, it's crazy to think like if I had known that at the time. But what that decision ha- would have been a lot easier. Yeah. Government or oh, Caviezel. yeah, yeah. Who do you want to hang with? God doesn't show you everything. <laughs> um, but... What happened was I was in Colombia as a U.S. agent, and again, I'd made myself the bait in a big operation. And what kind of support do you have at this point, right? Like, you say you're making yourself the bait. This is new. I mean, is it, I picture a, like, a, like a special forces style operation where you got snipers in the trees. But um, from hearing like the initial like stories, it's almost like, how, how at risk are you? Oh, it's very risky. Like, look, I, 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 um, disobeyed a lot of policies to get my, to make myself the bait. 
This was totally on Jack me. Jack Bauer, you got to do this, it. This was right? not like the U.S. government at all. Mm-hmm. Like I was really supposed to go down there and just do a training. That's what I was supposed like just train them. But I got a yeah. little bit emotional, and I started getting deeper and deeper, and I started making commitments. I said, No, no, no. Yeah, we need a hundred thousand dollars. We're gonna rescue a hundred kids, and and I started making commitments to the Colombian police, who were they were giving me a top cover, and they're awesome by the way. They are snipers in the trees. They have that mm-hmm. capability. But I had made myself the bait as the American. That's what they didn't have. They didn't have an American. It's more my face, frankly, than my skill set, okay? Yeah, yeah. They just needed Obviously it. <laughs> American, you're the guy. Yeah, right? so they, the, the traffickers let me in. Like, oh, this guy's from the States. So the traffickers, the stat that I'm trying not to think about is the, the child porn consumption being the highest in the United States. Yeah. So you go out there and it's almost like they think you just are credible and you're one of these guys. That's right. So you have to, you have this cause, this spiritual calling, a family supporting you even though they're scared, and you have to make yourself the dross of the earth to get this done. That's right. You have to present yourself as these people that we don't even have words for. Oh, yeah. My wife watched a documentary recently. We have a documentary called Operation Two Saint, if you go see it, if you haven't. It. It's on yeah. Amazon. My wife saw it for the first time, and it has footage of me undercover, and I'm, I'm yeah. effing this and F yeah. that. And I looked over, and she was... Because she'd never, ever heard me talk like that. And I looked at the, and she's just like this. She's, like, keeled over in her seat... I'm like, oh crap! You're like, do you really want to know what I do for a living? Yeah, I was like, my, I was like the biggest potty mouth because you that's how you got to talk yeah, to these you, guys. You they would spot you it. in a second. So right? it's it's hilarious in that way. With my poor wife. What's it called? Operation Two Saint. Operation Two T O U S S A I N T. Okay. It's it's it just got nominated for an Emmy actually. We didn't wow. we didn't win, but we we're in New York uh, last month. Look at that! Congratulations. Yeah. But it's a great, great documentary. It's, it streams for free on Amazon Prime if you yeah, have Amazon. We'll check Prime. it out. And it tells this this crazy story. Um, but, but yeah, so back in Colombia, so I, I made these commitments, I made these promises, and then I, I went back to my boss, and I knew the answer. I, I basically confessed, like, I screwed up. Like, I've, made, I've gone too deep. He's like, Tim, we can't, the Congress will light us up. You can't do that. I'm like, I know. But, but the Colombians are like, come on, come on, we gotta go. So um, I quit. That, that was the point where I said, so I, you kind of almost had to. I kind of had to. It was, you know, my wife, it was so easy. I'm like, what do I do? She's like, there's kids you have found that you can rescue? I said, yeah, but after we rescue them, we have enough money for that. Then what? Then we're going to starve. She's like, I don't care. She's like, yeah. see, my wife is, plays on a different like, faith level. Yeah. Like, she's like, it doesn't matter if we live in a tent. Yeah. She's like, you have to go get those kids out now. So that's kind of, that was already December 2013. It would have to be like, we joke quasi-seriously with the hours that guys work here that this is a family job. It's a family business. Yeah. Yours is a family-like calling, right? Yeah. Without, oh, yeah. without that, you, it's impossible. 100%. So... So that, that operation ended up, um, it led to the biggest rescue that we ever heard of, even to date, 121 rescued, 15 traffickers arrested, and then it just snowballed from there, and we started just, I mean, it's turned into a mass operation that's still going on. Can you talk about how you do it? I'm always interested in the details. Like, how do you do it? Because you, you obviously don't kick the door open and draw guns on everybody, and kids, you're this way, guys, you're this way, yeah. right? Like, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, but the thing, I was just telling one of my friends here that you were coming in, and the first question I bet you hear it all the time, we've already talked about is, man, I have kids, I don't know how he does it, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. But he said, uh, I don't know how you don't, how you restrain, I don't know how you not see the captor and take his face <laughs> off. Like, I don't, I mean, it's probably, there's a bigger mission and stuff like that, but how do you actually operate, if you can share that? So every operation is a little different. Um, in the government is much different than it is now. In the government, I sometimes was the guy that kicked down the door, but we don't do that anymore because we don't have guns anymore. 
So we're, 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 and we're not a vigilante group. What do you mean you don't have guns? Well, oh, you are. We're private consultants. So we don't have badges. We don't have authority. Oh, okay. So we have to connect. When we, we work with the guys who have lots of guns, mm-hmm. right? But we don't, you know, we, we're, we have a kind of a different role where we go, we sit down with the government and we say, what is it that you need? Like, we know there's a problem in your country. You know there's a problem. We happen to have every tool that we, on, on the planet to, to find, extract, and rehabilitate children. What do you need? You pick the menu and we'll provide it for you. So we've built um, forensic labs before where it allows wow. law enforcement to, uh, like in Thailand. Thailand said, we can't even do a child porn case. This was like three years ago. Because we don't have the equipment, the tech, to be able to efficiently download Evidence off someone's iPhone or computer. Like that level of tech. Like yeah. the tech that like every kid has in yes. their home office. Yeah, like they didn't have the, because you have to extract it in a way that makes it, you can still prosecute. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sanitized. It comes down in a way that, you know, that it's. They can tell it hasn't been doctored or exactly. anything Exactly. Like they didn't have anything. So we said, well, we know what you need. So we built a state-of-the-art, um, uh, we call it the, the Thailand Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. We built it with right into their Royal Thai Police Academy, and now it serves as the digital forensic hub for all of Southeast Asia. Countries wow. from all around come. My guy, I have a six-man team just in Thailand full-time that work all of Southeast Asia, and they're doing between 10 and 20 ops a month supporting with these guys. So wow. I, I like drop in and see how they're doing. So you've multiplied yourself. That's 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 what incredible. we've done, yeah. yeah. So sometimes they'll say, look, we need, we need an American to undercover. And so they'll... The, like when, in this Columbia case, they, 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 they said, look, I, you always, we always work for them. Like we're, we are just consultants for them, unpaid consultants, but we have MOUs in place and everything else to protect ourselves and protect them. And we be, basically become an extension of that law enforcement agency, informants. Um, and they'll put me on a beach or one of our guys on the beach and say, just sit there because we know that this is the beach that pedophiles from America sit on and we know traffickers are going to come up to you. And sure enough, they walk out. Like, like people would come up to me in Mazatlan to buy marijuana. That's right. It's that It's just like that, but in, instead of say, hey, you want some multa? Or do you want, do you want to go parasailing? Instead they say, hey, what age do you want? I got 11, 10, on up. They're and that brash? They're that, that brash? Just... On certain places, if you go to the right places, they know that's why you're there. And I, I hope I, I don't mean, sit on the wrong beach someday. Yeah, don't, you know sit, on, I mean? don't like... sit on the wrong beach. Don't sit on the wrong beach. Some of these beaches, like this one, was out in the middle of nowhere. Like it's, it's this beautiful. It's like beach. a code. Yeah, like they kind of know. And but little does the traffic know. We got sunglasses with this little undercover camera, mm-hmm. water water bottle camera, and we're just getting everything. So then I go back to the Colombian and say, "Here you so go." The first time they this happened, you were sitting yeah. on the beach. You. Yeah, me. And they come up and you say, "They say, hey, you want a party? Whatever." Yeah. And you say, no, no, I'm good, but you're documenting it? Is that- no, I just, I let, them, I let them talk. We don't want to entrap, so it's like we want to catch people doing what they're already doing, mm-hmm. right? Not induce them to do something. So we, I just sat there, and he's, he's like, I can bring a girl, uh, 11. I'm like, how old? Like, 11? is like, oh, really? Like, yeah, oh, I got 10, too. Really? Well, how would that work? Oh, you know, I have to see that house over there. He pointed to a house. He's like, I, I own that house. I can bring him there. I'm like, hey, listen, I'm actually, got, I got to leave today. But I got a bunch of buddies who are really interested in that. Can, can we talk later? Can, who, can I meet your team, your boss, whatever? And then all of a sudden, I'm talking to his boss. And now we're talking, being, talking about doing a bigger sex party, right? So now we're growing it to basically build the biggest net possible to rescue as many kids as we can. But all, again, every step at the direction of and under the jurisdiction of 
the Colombian police in this case. But you're hanging it out there. You're the one that's having the conversations. Oh yeah, I mean, we got to go into the house. Like we got to go into the guys, the bad guy's house, unarmed. Um, I wouldn't. I even as a cop undercover, I wouldn't wear a firearm. I th- for me, my personal is it's, it's more dangerous. How often do these like? I'm trying to assess the risk of that situation. How often do they? Just throw you out versus turn hostile. Like, are you scared when you're in there, or are you just so focused that you can't screw up? That I mean, you're scared. You're, it's it's like any anything probably before, before a big game or something. You know, when you're gonna play in a game or whatever. I mean, you're scared well, to death. Yeah. Going similar there. but quite different. Quite similar, right? yeah, but you might not die yeah, in yeah. a baseball game. But um, but yeah, so you're you're just you're just trying to focus and 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 you go through every scenario. You you, you game. You game it out every scenario. Does it help that you have kind of an alter ego? Does it help that you're playing? You're acting. Oh yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You have to have that. It does. It's almost like this person, this other person that can get this this mission done, is not you. So you can almost do things through that. Is it? Is it? Oh like yeah, that? absolutely. That that definitely provides uh, that definitely provides support. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we you you usually have an, an objective. Like in this particular case, the Colombian prosecutor said. We need Eduardo, his name was Eduardo, we need him to commit. He's t- he says he wants to bring kids to a party that he's calling a sex party, commit to a date, and then he'll bring the kids, set a price, and a date. Man. The price sickened me. What is the price? Oh, it's horrible. It's, so it's, uh, it's, it's about, in, in, in the market of sex, and I hate to even go here, but uh, like adult prostitutes, uh, it's about double or triple that for a child. If it's a virgin child, and they'll they'll like kidnap kids and then groom them for the right for a thousand dollars more, you're gonna get you know they they can give you a virgin because a thousand dollars more, so it, it'll cost about twelve hundred fifteen hundred dollars. That's crazy for 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 me. like a day or a night. Mm-hmm. That's crazy to me because it's you you often think that um, and I'm just learning about this right like alongside with you on this, but like in my head that level of Evil and and crime is for people that have rolled rubber band money that are spending thirty grand, twelve hundred bucks. That's just crazy to me. It's crazy that for a few hundred bucks, that's literally what this life is going to. Yeah. This like the pure innocence of a child for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. These are indispo- These are disposable people to the traffickers. They're just a product. Our product. I remember talking to one trafficker once. Shocked me. Shocked my system. He was selling me a little girl, seven years old, you know, negotiating. The negotiation was done. He pulls out his iPhone and says, oh, look at this girl. And he'd been pulling his iPhone out all day showing mm-hmm. me, I got this one, I got this one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 we'll take, you know, we're just trying to rescue these kids. And then I thought it was over. He's like, oh, I got this one. I thought, oh, he's got one more he wants to try to sell me. And there's this little girl in his white dress, this beautiful little child. And she's in the next picture, he's on a bike. And I'm like, oh, the next picture, he's in it, helping her on the bike. I'm like, oh, I'm like, what? He's like, this is my daughter. Like, I just wanted to show you. Just he's so cute. And same I lo- phone. I, I same looked at life. Yeah, I'm like, dude. Conversation. How do like, you do this? You compartmentalize like a madman. You said this to him, so you're being real with the guy. Oh no, this is oh, inside. In yeah, okay. I was just like, this is crazy. Yeah, this is crazy. Like, your daughter's a real person, special to you. You love, but this little girl, who's someone else's daughter, is nothing. It's a computer part. It's business, and yeah. it's just that's how they. That's how these guys function. This is the most, it's a bizarre world, they, a criminal mind, you know. Does it get to a point, well, continue with the story. I want to hear how the operation goes down. So you're talking to Eduardo here, and yeah. you're negotiating it, a price for a party. Right, and what's interesting is um, 
I had just done some, I've been doing some research. I, I, uh, I, I had an interview with Tony Robbins. You know who Tony Robbins is? Yeah, we actually, I heard that he just did a big round of funding for your group. Oh, yeah, he? he's, he's our biggest donor. Yeah, that's And he's great. been on ops with us. And, he's and done I, some speaking things for our group. I spent a lot of time with him, on, on, and he's given me some research on service. This is, it's so fascinating. Um, what happens to your body? He's served. Like, every time I'm with Tony, he's, he's giving tens of thousands of dollars to like every aftercare home he visits, like quietly, no cameras. He's just like, here, writing. I'm looking at these checks, I'm like, dude, you, this isn't just like something you don't feel. You're, you're very successful and everything, but you feel this. He's giving massive amounts yeah. of money away. And so I was talking to him at his home one day after we did this interview at his house about my book, Slave Stealers. And I said, well, I got to ask you what. A, what your giving thing. He's like, he's like, Tim, you don't know the secret to, the, the secret to living is giving. That's his voice. Even. Uh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty yeah, good at Tony Robbins. <laughs> the secret to living is giving. I was like, okay, what's that? He's like, I got to give you a blessing. It's like, come into my office. I need to give you a blessing. True. That's exactly what he said. I'm thinking. Well, is it going to get weird in here? This is going <laughs> to get this. Have you ever seen the movie Shallow How? Yeah. So you know when he gives yeah. Jack Black a blessing in the, in the broken elevator? I don't remember that part. I he, just remember banana has, hands he, from that, you know? Yeah, he, he calls him banana hands, yeah. and he's like, rah! So I'm like, is he going to do something weird? Like, is this going to get funky with yeah. Tony Robbins? But he, he, what he did was he put me into his room, and he, he went through, his wife, Sage, beautiful person, comes in, and they, they, they play this music, and it, it basically, it's basically a prayer and a meditation kind of ceremony, session, not ceremony, mm-hmm. but... Um, they got me thinking in every way I could about times people have given to me or I've given to people, like charity. And all of a sudden, like, after several minutes, I was in this new, like, I just felt like I had been given a drug. Yeah, this beautiful thing. Completely. I was just like, and he's like, hey, Tim, who do you hate? We all have that one person. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got him right away. You and, probably have a handful. Yeah, it's probably a handful. not hard yeah. for you to find a couple. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, he's like, how do you feel about him right now if you walk through the door? I said, I, gee, I love him. It's like, isn't that crazy? Like, yeah, what'd you do to me? I want, I, this is awesome. How do I do yeah. this? So he, he pointed, me to this, pointed me to this research. Again, something applicable to everyone listening to this podcast. And when you give, your, your brain re- produces chemicals, oxytocin, serotonin, mm-hmm. uh, dopamine. This beautiful, yeah. yeah, and it's all the things that have scientifically been proven that brings um, courage and brings light and brings hope teamwork, love, like all these things that you can't teach your employees or your kids. Yeah. You know, you can't teach them those things. But you can induce those things through this beautiful chemical reaction. He's like, Tim, that's why I'm successful. That's why I, I give, I give, I give even beyond what I should. And so going back to that Columbia case, this first case was all like, we've done many, many ops, like over 300 ops, right? But this one was the most service-oriented because we truly had no other competing interests. Like we were doing this because my wife told me that if I didn't, that I couldn't come home, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there was no, yeah. it was just. Physically because, and metaphorically yeah, go home. It was home, just right? about like, the kids Yeah. on that first stop and for all the guys who were volunteering. And, and so because of that, something happened to me, like all those characteristics that Tony had taught were in me in that moment, in that undercover op with Eduardo. Because so you're superhuman. Like literally, if that's this, coursing through you, and you this, if, if anyone who has that going through, you become superhuman. Yeah. And by the way, all my heroes, I look at all history heroes, think they all actually were massive service-oriented people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it allows you to do superhuman things. That's it, it, Again, I, I know this is a true prayer. I'm not yeah. a master of this. I know it works. And this is one of the times it worked because my mind was so set on this case on service. And so what happened was the script that the Colombian police gave me was, 
have Eduardo commit to, to whatever kids he controls to a party. Well, he only controlled 15 kids. And I was like, 15 kids? Like, we're, we had a goal of 100 kids. And so um, you don't want to stray from the script, though, right? Because, again, you're undercover. There's armed guys over here. you got nothing but a wire taped to your chest and undercover cameras and on a watch. You know, that's given a camera signal as well. And, and what you don't want to do is, like, so you're looking at that, looking at the threat. You know that they would kill you if they found out you had a wire. You have to get them to say the right things but not force them to say it. And, and then all the, all the while, while not getting killed, act like you love the guy and you're best friends. So that's a lot going on in your head. And he's the worst person you can think of. Yeah, right? and he's, like, he, you want to reach out and, and, and you're fighting that. Like, yeah. I want to punch you in the nose. So you don't have a lot of leeway creative, you know, creatively. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to because you're locked. Like it's, it's very intense. But because I swear those drugs were flowing through my mind, from my brain into my body, mm-hmm. it was like I felt almost like a RoboCop in that moment. I remember like, dude, dude, got, got it, got it, got it, got it. And I got plenty of extra resource mentally, emotionally to give. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Eduardo, um, I'm interested in more than just a party. It's like I want, I want to be a business partner. And the Colombian cop who's with me, he's just like, this is Dude, off the script. <laughs> you're, what, what are you doing? Like, yeah. we got to get out of here. Yeah. You want to you talk about business with this guy? But I was just, I kept going with him. And I eventually got him to open up his business plan. And he, he explained that he bought some, about a couple acres of land on these islands called the Badu Islands, just outside of Cartagena, 45-minute boat ride, beautiful islands. It's actually where I met his little cohort, Fuego, who I met on the beach. Hmm. Oh, um, really? It was the same Fuego. place. Fuego. He called himself Fuego. Yeah, yeah. he did. So, yeah. Um, uh, so, so we're, so we are, uh, so he opens up this thing, his business plan. He's, I said, what do you need? He's like, he's like, here's my plan. It's like, I'm going to build a, a hotel, this beautiful boutique hotel. It's going to look like a hotel, but what it's going to be is a sex club. You're going to pay a hundred thousand dollars or more a month, whatever. Clients come in, have all, all they want, all they can eat. I got these I'll have children, pack the children. And I said, dude, I have so many clients, potential clients. Let's, let's partner up. So what do you need? He's like, I need, I need roughly a million dollars to build this project, to build the hotel. I said, I can do that. That's easy. I get so many guys who invest. This is big bucks. And it truly is big bucks. I mean, this is, this is on a, in a business, strictly speaking business. It's a lot of money, right? Because there is a mass market for this, as, as evil as it is. And um, I said, but I can't give you a million dollars if you only have 15 kids. I mean, that's, that, that's not going to, we're not going to make our money. And so that got him thinking and got him to do what we were hoping he would do, which was he started calling all his competitors. He called all the competitors in town. So Pro- they all know each other. They so. all know each other, but they're, it's just like two companies, right? They're like, okay. It's not like gang wars or no, anything No, like they, can't, they can't afford to do that mm. because what they do is so... It'll draw attention to yeah. them. And- so they, they, he brings them all together. We have, we have lunch on, this, on this, beach, this beachfront restaurant. And... Um, you have it all filmed. You know, we can get you some the B-roll of this. And he, he introduces me to these people. One of the people is this woman named Kelly Suarez. Um, she's like the number one tracker, trafficker in town. She's like 23 years old. She's Miss Cartagena from a few years earlier. Beautiful, famous. And what she, she's... It's like a movie. Oh, yeah. Well, it is a movie. This is the Jim Caviezel movie. 
I'm telling you, they, they get yeah. into this whole thing, but because that's why they that's why they're making a movie about it because it was like a movie. Yeah, right? it's the one woman you wouldn't expect, and <laughs> oh, she's yeah. like the kingpin. Or oh yeah, no. and she and what she was doing is she had a modeling agency, and she would give scholarships to nine and ten year old boys and girls, impoverished ones. In fact, she won her beauty pageant on the platform of helping the impoverished youth oh, of Columbia. You, and, can't, and, and, you can't even write stuff I know. Like, and she's like, and I am because look, I give scholarships. Da, da. Well, yeah, she's bringing these kids in and desensitizing them through all the things they do and then selling them to Americans or who are travelers. So, so, she's, so now we have um, up, upwards of like 50 kids all together. So now the Colombian prosecution is like, oh my gosh, Tim, this is awesome. We're going to rescue 50 kids. So they bring all the kids to the, to the island party it's kind of like um it's kind of like they, they were calling it product testing yeah they're going to demonstrate that they actually have and 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 i i brought they said bring bring your potential clients so we see it. it's a product testing party so I, I bring all these guys who are all former law enforcement military guys who are just pretending to be sick pedophiles to partake in this right so they they come in and they they um they sit down we do the negotiation now how we do this is we put the kids in another room and we supply our own groomers. So traffickers will bring groomers to these kind of settings. Groomers are the, they're usually just employees, usually women, usually, frankly, um, children, children who became prostitutes, you know, children who were sex slaves mm-hmm. and now they're enslaved in a different way. But we told the traffickers, we have our own groomers, so leave yours at home because we take the kids and put them in a special room where they're safe and the groomers are really us, our guys, yeah. our, our female office operators. And now they're just kind of keep the kids calm. They can't tell them, guess what? <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're free. free. But sh- yeah. yeah, they can't because it's too risky. And then we are, we're outside far enough away where we're doing the deal. And then once the money's exchanged and the evidence is in, the Colombian's calling the shots, you know. Uh, there, there's, a, there's two go-fast uh, go boats around the island waiting for the command of bring out the wine. That's the key word. The key phrase, bring out the wine, means the deal's been done and then the boats come speeding around and boom, everybody goes down and the kids get taken out and put into you know, their, their healing process. Everybody goes down meaning you guys get arrested. We get arrested too, too. yeah. We, we always go down to keep our cover. It allows us to keep working another day, you know. So that, that's how that case went down and then we had actually two simultaneous cases. This was October 14th, by the way. We just hit our oh, anniversary, wow. yeah. 2014. Uh, we were hitting simultaneous traffickers in Medellin and in Armenia, Colombia, and it, the total was 121 wow. rescued. Big, big deal. Yeah. That is a big deal, man. That's incredible. I, I think what you're doing to raise awareness is, I mean, it's shocking, but I just can't believe that, you know, you would think that this would be the number one topic on every, uh, I mean, I know you've advised yeah. the president. I know you've, yeah. you know, you're friends with Tony Robbins. You've got Glenn Beck's. I mean, how, in my head, it's like, how is this not, how is there not like, parent education for, hey, these are the things to watch for. It kills me. You know what I mean? I mean, this it, is in my it, neighborhood. It or this is me. my area. You know, you know every know time I, mean? I come like, home from a trip, from an op, from seeing this, and I, and I look at the headlines that everyone's you know, going goo-goo over every day, I'm just like, the headline should be, there's six million children being forced into hell of sex slavery and, and other kinds of slavery. And news is canceled until we figure it yes, out. Yes, that's what like, I want. You know? That's what I want. Like, again, I'm not, I'm not getting political here and I'm not making a comment on climate change, okay? I'm not going there. But I looked at these marches about climate change and, you know, all these kids coming, people coming from overseas to, to be ir- outraged at, at this thing. And I'm, I'm, look, address that as you will. I'm not an expert in that. 
I've never seen anyone do that for the millions of kids who are actually dying and actually being raped. We're not projecting that it's gonna happen. It's happening and it has happened for decades. And we don't see marches on that. I know. Where, where are you guys? I, where's the where's where's the person that's going to come from Europe over on a boat to tell me that we need to rescue children and and get, get have that get all the attention? Like I don't get it. It, it blows my mind. And these poor kids, we're their voice because what, what I'm saying is like what they would be saying, right? They would be saying this, like, help, help us. Yeah. Like get us out of this hell. We could do it if everyone came together. Yeah. And and there has I I have to admit. I mean, there's been a lot more going on in, in D.C. especially. And, sure. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a theme, but I've never seen the public get outraged. Well, in my education... I'm looking for the public outrage. You and know? I think, yeah, and I 100% agree. It's, and hopefully it didn't sound tongue-in-cheek when I introduced at the beginning that you're doing the most important work in the world. If we can't, if we can't protect the most innocent among us, the future, the, 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 the very people we're, we're, we're literally given stewardship over then we've already lost the world oh, yeah. as it is. Everything. However, I wonder if, first of all, this is probably how it starts. My education in this has come from you. I didn't know that there was more people in, in slavery now than there used to be. So it sucks and we probably should be bigger, but do you feel like it's catching fire or are you disappointed with how much fire it's catching? I'm, no, I'm actually optimistic you, that's what I was in ask. terms of the media that's, that's getting out there. Like I said, when I started in this 17, 18 years ago, I didn't know what it was. And, by the way, I ran from it. So I don't blame anyone. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I, I sound hypocritical, I probably am being hypocritical. Because sure. I'm saying, where's the outrage? Well, I was the, upon first uh, you know, acknowledgement, I was the guy in, in, in the hole hiding from it. Okay, so I get it, it's scary stuff. Um, but our job, you know, it, now that my face has already been kind of burned for undercover work, uh, my primary job right now is to tell the story, and that's why we're, we have, you know, we have our third documentary coming out next year called Triple Take. We have this feature film with Fox coming out with Jim Caviezel and Mira Servino next year. These are the things that are going to save yeah. us. And and if you look back at history, like how did we get rid of the legalized form of slavery that existed in this country, which was just as bad or worse than anything has ever happened? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking away from that at all by talk, by comparing the numbers. Um, you know, populations are much bigger today too. But how did it finally end? You know, did Abraham Lincoln just raise his hand one day and say, hark, I will now end this. Mm-hmm. I love Abe, but that's not what happened, right? What, what happened was the storytellers, they, they, changed, they changed it. Mm-hmm. Um, storytellers from the inside, like Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist movement. I love the story of Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, that you just mentioned, like you just learned for the first time what yeah. this was, right? Well, she, understand people in the North in the 19th century didn't travel to South Carolina or Georgia any more than you and I today travel to Mexico or Thailand. Yeah. So they didn't, not that you have to go that far, there's 250,000 child sex slaves in this country, but they're more hidden here. But, but, but the point is, um, it wasn't much different for them as, as for us in terms of what, you, what they were doing. Why weren't they being louder about it? So here at Beecher Stowe, you can kind of make a parallel. You know, she, she crosses the river, she lives in, in Ohio, crosses the river into Kentucky one day, runs into slavery, didn't mean to, accidentally stumbled upon it, just like a lot of people probably accidentally stumbled upon an OUR video. Like, what is this? And she sees it for the first time and says, what, what is this? Like, I, I heard of this. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I've never seen it. And so she goes home distraught, mostly at the North for being so apathetic and not having engaged this. And she's ashamed for not having engaged it, for, for not having known about it. 
But she says, I'm not a politician. I'm not a popular voice. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a, an operator on the Underground Railroad. I mean, what, what can I do? And her sister knew of this struggle, wrote her a letter and says, you like to write. Why don't you use your talents and what you can? Write a story about it. And she writes this book called Uncle Tom's Cabin, which sells millions of copies and mm. is the first real bright light on slavery where people start reading and saying, this is it? Really? This is happening? And so that started this momentum, basically really shook the foundations of the whole country and in some ways the globe to the point where the government had to respond. Um, I had no idea. And, and Abraham Lincoln, when, according to Harry Beecher Stowe's son, when Abraham Lincoln met her for the first time in the White House, he bends down and grabs her little hand and says, so you're the lady that wrote the book that started this war. And wow. it was true. He recognized it. It's the storytellers that get loud. That's why I want to see that kind of passion that we see in the streets yeah. about climate change or whatever other issues out there. Let's make this the biggest issue right now. Yeah. Uh, children being kidnapped, raped, having their organs cut out. It, it doesn't get worse. There's nothing worse. I don't care what other problems people have seen. You know, instead, we're spending all this time talking about uh, a phone call in Ukraine and the impeachment. Yeah. It's just like, oh my gosh, like, deal with that as you have to. Children are being raped, guys. And you're certainly not going to be helping on the cause when you're focused on these other things. And so there's, you know, there are only so many resources to go around. It's just like, it breaks my heart. And so that's why we feel like, yes, we're encouraged that the Harriet Beecher Stowe's have come out. Mm -hmm. The abolitionist movement of, of, of the modern day has begun in ways that it, we never saw years ago. Um, but uh, we're not there yet. You know, we're, we're encouraged. I give credit to, to Alejandro Monteverde and Eduardo Verastegui. These are the movie makers and Jim Caviezel, the storytellers of, of, of that film, or, or DNA Films is the, is the Emmy-winning team that did Operation Toussaint. I mean, these guys are the unsung heroes. These are the guys that are telling the stories that are, they're gonna change the world. Wow, yeah, that's... And that's... you, I mean, you doing this, you are doing that. I mean, the, we, 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 the media is, is, is gonna be the thing that ends this. I once, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who works here, his name's Taylor Turnbull, and it was just like one of those questions that you ask, like, if you had a bunch of money, what would you do? You know, and he asked me, he's like, if you didn't have to work, what would you do? And I like, it was casual conversation, but I took it and for some reason thought about it forever. Like, and I came back like a week later, I was like, hey, I know what I would do. And I was like, I hope that I would invest time and resources into fighting human trafficking. It's the worst thing I can think of, right? So having that, number one, like meeting you and hearing how you went through it, number one, I hope... I don't have to wait till I am independently wealthy to do it. Obviously, you didn't, right? You, you, <laughs> yeah, you didn't wait till you had two months of groceries. Um, and I hope the people that are listening are encouraged. They feel your enthusiasm. They feel your fire uh, and will get involved with this cause. Um, but I, I, what I'm, I guess, gleaning from you is the courage to do something now. Because if it is the worst thing you've ever heard of, then, then what, right? Um, before we talk about where you see it going and how we'll beat this thing or whatever, if we can. I want to talk about, and maybe this goes back to your kids' faces, what, it's kind of an abstract concept, but the light and the darkness. I read a story, uh, and I'm going to butcher it, so help me if I do, on an op that you were on, and I think it was asked of you how you deal with the, the this, I have to portray myself as this and the kids see me. Mm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you present yourself as one of these pedophiles to an eight-year-old kid, right? And um, if I remember correctly, you were taken down in the raid with everybody else. Uh, 
and were let go like on a hill or something like that. And the child or some of the children saw them let you go. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? And they knew that you were the good guy yeah. and that that was some sort of like divine like you needed that. Oh, I needed it so bad. We, you know, we, you Did know, I do okay on the story? Is it you're, accurate? You're very right. almost, almost 99%. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, what happened was, well, look, when we, when we get arrested with the bad guys and you're so happy, you're just like, there's a scene in the movie. I, I just saw the movie, so it's fresh in my head, the, mm. the Kid Fiesel movie, where they depict that Jim playing me gets arrested and he's like trying to look at the kid and like he sends him like a message like, I'm the good guy. Right. The problem is you want to just run to those kids and say, we did it. We got, you know, yeah. and instead they're spitting at you and, and you're happy they are because they think you're, you're like, a whatever guy. you're safe. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're just like, yeah, yeah mother effer, you're in jail, man. And I'm just like, I'm glad that you're fighting the bad, mm-hmm. but it just, it's just that we're not the bad. Like, you know, what a, what a conflicting. Oh, like, it is. You just, you know? all, what you do is you just say, I will see them in heaven someday, you know? You know, or maybe I get to come back. I've had cases where I came back out of, like, with no, with no. If, if I had a good disguise, if I was, you know, I wonder if like, I'd come back to the aftercare part. Like, hi, we're from, mm-hmm. we're from the foundation that's helping your aftercare, and then you get to meet them. You know. Yeah, you probably need that, right? But what happened was, and it's it's dangerous, very dangerous security. You know, operational security requires that we we wouldn't reveal to, to these victims, recently rescued, um, who we are. Because then they will start talking. I mean, we got to get out. It's very dangerous for us. We got to get out of the country quick. If word leaks that we were, I mean, these we got arrested side by side with bad guys. They think we're all in this together. If they find out that we had betrayed them, that we were actually the cops the whole time. Well, they eventually find out because they're in jail and you're not. They'll eventually find yeah. out. Hopefully not until discovery comes out, pre-trial stuff. But we're safe and protected at that point. We're in a different place and we have time to mitigate. But in the moment, in those in those first moments, if they find out like, hey, yeah, we're with the cops. Man, they could get messaged to someone and meet mm-hmm. us in the airport. We could be dead mm-hmm. before we get out of town. But um, what happened was uh, they took the bad guys first, the real bad guys, and then they started uncuffing us. And it was a com- we don't know exactly what happened. Certainly some of the kids looked and saw that we were being uncuffed. And they're like, wait, what is going on? And then they asked one of the aftercare specialists. The aftercare team comes right on right away. And, and my team's in there too with them, um, helping and with the aftercare side, we, that's the most important part of what we do, frankly. Um, and we stay with these kids till forever until they're eventually reintegrated. Um, someone asked someone, you know, one of the kids asked, Who are, what's going on? Like, oh, those guys were just pretending to be bad guys. They've been, they've been the whole time looking for you. They, they're the ones that got you out. And that was the first time in hundreds of cases <laughs> where that happened. Mm. And by necessity, we had to walk by because we had to go on this dock to get on these boats and that's where the room where where the kids were and they were they were just um uh they're just they're just windows with um screens and so as we walk by we're like oh shoot get your like get your hands behind your back like we're still Mm -hmm. arrested and but it didn't matter the kids came out and said thank you we know what happened we know who you are and they're crying wow and they put their hands up on the screen and so our our guys are putting their hands up just touching their hands through the screen you know and, and everyone's crying. Like, they're crying and we're crying. I got these big, you know, special op guys who are yeah. just like, I've never experienced this before. Like, we, like we, this is the first and only time yeah. that we get to interact with these kids, you know? Yeah. Um, and it was, uh, in fact, one of them said, this is really cool, 
one of the operators behind me was just bawling. He was like crying on my shirt as we were passing by the kids. And he, he's, this sounds really cheesy now as I tell it, but in the moment it was just beautiful. He says, do you hear that? Because they were screaming, the kids were screaming like in like jubilation, mm-hmm. like freedom. Like he was just like, and um, he, this operator's crying and he's like, that is the sound of freedom. That's the sound of freedom. And when I told that story to the producers, the name of the movie, the Kibisa movie, is The Sound of Freedom. Wow. And that line gets in at that point in the, in the movie. So, oh, so that's, that was the same, that was the Columbia. Uh, that was the Columbia that that op. Happened. Oh, I didn't know that. That was the same Columbia op. Yeah, where that happened. Wow. Man, that's it was like It was like heaven convened to put these cool stories all in one op because they knew they were going to make a movie about it. That's, yeah. You know, that's what it feels like. This is like... But that's that's one of those moments. Do you find because again, I, I I see you in this super super dark world, getting wins and you're you're dynamic and you're engaged and you're not a dark, heavy war torn soul. How does it how does it work? Do you feel glimpses of positivity when you're in there? I don't even know if I can articulate it right. But yeah, no, this is such a good question and it's one that I was asked a long time ago and I didn't didn't know how to answer it because they would ask me like, how do you how, how come you're even a positive person at all? Like, yeah. how do you go home and play with your kids? Because it seems like after, after hundreds of operations and all this misery, that you would just be just a, a miserable soul. And how do you sit knee to knee with these guys? And I was, I was afraid to answer honestly in the beginning because I didn't know how to explain as I thought back to those moments. Because when I am knee to knee with the trafficker and the kids right behind the door and I'm that close, there's this light that I felt. Yeah. This happiness, this like... Like it was not, I'm saying the worst, most vile things and they're saying it back. And yet I'm, it's like, what what is that? And it was actually um, years later when I was studying my scriptures um, and and learning about the the angels, you know, the the reality of angels as as a doctrine, right? Mm -hmm. We read all through the biblical account and everywhere else. Um, And it was made known to me. Like I felt it strongly. Like that's what it is. That's what the, the room's just the, packed full. The closer I get to the kids, see the kids I know are surrounded by angels. Like I'm a big believer in angels. Okay, yeah. and I, I wouldn't be except from what I've experienced, not from what I've read, what I've experienced. Um, because you know, a lot of people have lost their, have lost their faith in this work. How could God allow children to be hurt this bad? There must not be a God, or He's not a very good God, right? And I've seen people walk away, and I, I, I got it. Except for me, my faith went through the roof through all this. Because, you know, where God allows evil to, to, to act its act and, and allows uh, for agency to, to, be, you know, to, to exist. And yet God weeps for these kids. And there's angels, I'm telling you, are with them. And the closer that we get to them, even though there's this evil between us and them, the closer we get, the brighter that light gets. It's like you want to get there just to be in the presence of these, these, you know, these angelic beings that are protecting these kids. And that was the feeling I got. And so, yes, there is this, there is this strange light in the dark that exists, um, that exists when, when you do this work. And if, if, if it didn't, I, probably, I would be that miserable guy. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would come home and just, I'd probably be suicidal. I mean, I probably would. Man, yeah, I think that's that's really well explained. I, I don't understand it because I've never like from an experience. Yeah, even as I say it, I, I don't even have the words to really. This is the best I believe I can you do. believe it, and I believe you've experienced <laughs> it, and I'm glad you shared it. So, um, so is it getting to the point now where 
your mission? I know what what's the I don't know if you guys keep an exact count, but what's the oh, yeah. approximate? What's the count? We're, man, I'm, I, our guys are killing it right now. Look, I, 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 I thought I was good at this until I, we got big enough to hire the right people. <laughs> um, and, and then I realized I, I wasn't so great at it, but I found people who are just amazing at, the, at, at operations. Uh, we, I just came back recently from one of our, we have assessments every, every um, year where we bring people in. It's very difficult to make it into our teams. Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually former law enforcement, military guys. But the guy who, so when I was quitting my job um, back in 2013, everybody said, you're crazy to do this. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your pension, your retirement. You're going to have no food for your family. Everyone but my wife said, you have to do this or you're crazy to do this. And then one other person, when I, when I went to go quit, I didn't go to my direct supervisor. I went to the boss of the entire state for Homeland Security. I don't know why. No I just, turning back. Yeah, I was like, one. I'm just going to talk to him. <laughs> yeah. I went to his office. I waited outside. I don't go there very often. And he's like, oh, come on in. Well, how can I help you? You know, a really good guy. His name's John Lines. And, um, and I told him. And I, was cry- I, I, was, I started crying. Like, you're not, you, don't, you don't go to this office to cry, yeah. okay? <laughs> and I'm just like, I have to leave, I think. Like, I don't know. To, I, it was during that horrible time in my life where I'm just like struggling. And he's just like looking at me. He's like, Tim, you're crazy. I'm like, here we go. Here we go again, right? You're crazy not to, mm-hmm. to, to do this. And he said, you're crazy. And he, he literally said those words. He, you're crazy if you don't do this. He's like, you've got to try this. It's like, look, we recognize that there's gaps that U.S. government by law can't fill. Mm-hmm. He's like, go do this. Go do it. Wow. Like, and I was just, and I needed that so badly. Yeah. It was just like, oh my gosh. Like, I just felt light in the room. Like, I needed that, to borrow some of that light and energy and optimism. Well, two years later, he was tracking us from afar. And um, I started getting into media. And I was like, I, I can't do operators. I can't run these ops much longer. We're growing. And I'm like, who could I trust? And I'm, I'm like, I thought, my old boss. So I called him up. I'm like, hey, uh, how are, what are you doing? Are you still like your job? <laughs> He's like, hey, I've been following you, man. It's been, oh, really? I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. Yeah. I said, would you consider quitting and, and running operations for me? And he says, just, you just tell me when and where. Wow. Quit his job, join me. So now he runs all of our operations in 22 countries. And ever since that day, that was about two years ago, our numbers are through the roof. Like we, we've never had, I mean, we, th- this year alone, We've rescued more kids than we have in any other year, and the year's you know only ha- you know not even done yet. Um, but our numbers are um, we're close to three thousand children that we've wow. and and trafficking uh, victims that we've that we've rescued. But the number that's even more compelling to me is uh, about fifteen hundred pedophiles and traffickers in jail, because I know that one of those guys can unleash a life of hell on. And over a lifetime, 100, 100 people probably, 100 kids. Well, more than that as they continue through life with their issues and That's pass right. those on. And see, so you then know. you start realizing how many kids were rescued that never needed to know that they were rescued mm-hmm. because they were never taken in the first place because their captors are in jail. So I look at that number as the real rescue. Do they stay in jail um, in these other countries? Do they get uh, you know, prosecuted? Are they going to get out in a couple years because they paid somebody? Um, not generally, and this is why. Uh, there's this great thing in 2006 that passed um, that called the, uh, the, 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 the Congress or the President Bush actually signed up into law. It was called the uh, Trafficking in Persons Report. 
I think it was 2006 when it started coming out. And it, it was real risky. It's, it's a name and shame game. The State Department goes through every country and, and, and ranks people based on how... Almost like a sex offender here. Right? Yeah. They're, they're like, on the register. Yeah. They, everybody knows. If you're tier three, you know, if you're a country that's tier three, don't expect help from the United States. How do you get to tier one and tier two? Create laws that are good, arrest traffickers, pedophiles, and then keep them in jail. So countries forfeit potential support from the United yes. States if they support yes. it. So what we do is we take advantage of that. So when we're doing an operation, we always invite the embassy to be part of it. So we got their eyes on it. Mm -hmm. Like, hey guys, these guys are going to support us. And they like to support us too. We love to have their support. They're awesome. They're, you know, the, the U.S. government is our greatest ally in everything we're doing. Um, and so we get together with them. And then when we do the operation, they know, you know, Big Brother's watching. And they're going to see if, if you do any shady crap and let these guys out of jail or anything like that, that's going to affect your ranking. So that has given us a huge advantage to make sure that even in countries that are, that are you know, prone to corruption, that we have, we have them, have them on, on check. Wow. I'm not saying it doesn't, you know, sometimes we've dealt with the corruption. In fact, Operation Two Saint, that documentary, talks about a case where we had mass corruption mm -hmm. and how we dealt with it. We, we, we had all these guys arrested and they were all bought their, bought their way out of jail within a week. But then we did something. We came back. So I'm not going to... Yeah, we'll watch it. We'll all watch it. We're all in. That's great. Um, so where do you see it going? Is it to the point now where... I think of like... Um, what's that show? Uh, like the Dateline show or whatever? Where To Catch a Predator, Catch a predator or whatever. Yeah. Uh, do people in these other countries in this industry operate with fear because they know this is happening? You would think now like... I, I'll watch like To Catch a Predator and I'm like, how could you be this stupid? Yeah. You know... <laughs> There's a good chance that you're not talking to the person you think you're talking to. You're talking to a 40-year-old yeah. man who's yeah. a, got a badge. Yeah. So in these other countries, is there whisperings of this group there where they're like, hey, you, are they operating with fear? Are people saying, I'm out. The risk is too high. Yes, and that's, how, that's part of the solution, right? You get people looking over the shoulder for the first time. They've been working with impunity for decades. Right. No consequence. Some countries had no laws for decades. So it's like, I'm not even technically doing anything illegal. <laughs> by selling kids or making child porn. I mean, can you, can you imagine that? It's crazy. So, um, so yes, they are now thinking twice about it. And, and the, the hope is that they decide to go into another business. And, not, and, and we, we've got to make the entry to barrier, you know, or the barriers to, en to entering this black market steep and difficult. And that's what we do is, is know, let them know, like, we're, we're on you. We're, and there's nowhere we won't go. And by we, I don't mean just O-U-R. I mean, you know, the, the, the law enforcement. We, we don't want to su su replace or su supplant. We want to enhance and empower law enforcement. That has to be the threat. Those, those local agencies have to be that threat that keeps traffickers at bay. Mm. Um, maybe the last question I'll ask you. I know Glenn, Bas Glenn Beck asks this of people, but he says that he'll ask his friends that are in politics how their soul is. You, when you said, I'm doing mandatory evaluations once a year, and we're kind of like, yeah, they make me. I can't imagine doing this without evaluations daily, weekly, whatever. How is it, is it hard for you to, to compartmentalize the things you've seen? Do you have to work on your brain, soul, spirit? Like, if you don't mind sharing, how do you keep yourself healthy? Do you feel healthy? Yeah, it's, it's always up and down, you know? You have good days and bad days. Because you can't unsee that stuff. You can't unsee You can't unlive the things you that, you can't unlive you know? it. It's something you have to, you carry around always for sure. Um, we, we've had, we have um, several uh, 
pro bono therapists who work on all my guys. So we have regular check-ins that way. And everyone has their different ways to deal with it. You know, I have an amazing family. Um, my faith is, is my healing power, frankly. And between that and my family, that cleanses me and heals me. Um, but, you know, there's also that, that memory is always there. The PTSD is always a little bit there. But I'm actually okay with that. Um, it's, 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 it, it's good to feel it. You know, it's good to feel it. It's, frankly, it's what motivates. Because, um, again, going back to what my wife told me, like, whatever pain you have, compare that pain to that kid. That's a motivating factor. You're like, right. screw my pain. Yeah, it puts it like, in perspective. Yeah, and then you want to go, you want to go deeper and, 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 and keep, keep fighting. Um, how do we help? How do we get involved? Is there anything that we can do? You know, I tell people every time they ask, you will know, your audience will know before me exactly what they can do. But what I would ask everyone to do is um, I'd have them go watch the documentary, Operation yes. Two Saint, um, because, and as you're watching it, ask yourself, what are my skill sets? Am I a great writer? Do I have extra money I could give? We have an abolitionist program. Um, it's what keeps us in business. 40% of our operations are run from our abolitionist program. It's recurring donors. $5, you know, it's a Lincoln. $5 uh, or more uh, a month. Is, and this is why this is important. When we know what's coming, we can plan better. Mm. You know, we don't want to wait for the trends and the economy. Yeah. and Have one ready and not be able to deploy it. Yeah, so it. it's like, look, we, got these, we know that we're going to get 40% of our budget is going to be covered. It's not going to go away very soon because they're recurring donors. It's our, it's our abolitionist program. Um, people can look that up. Um, but donate a little there or, or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, um, you know, you're, you're good at planning events or you want to help... Uh, tackle certain political issues around trafficking. Uh, but people can go to our website, OURrescue.org, um, and, and they can, there's, there's a tab that says join the fight with all sorts of ideas about how people can get involved. We also run a foundation that Glenn Beck started that he gave, he gave us a couple years ago called the Nazarene Fund, where we're, we're dealing with trafficking and refugee issues with ISIS victims, uh, Christian women and children and Yazidis and, and ethno-religious minorities in the Middle East. So check out the NazareneFund.org too. We also run that. That's uh, a little bit different mission, but, but just horrible stuff that's happening. You know, ISIS is making a comeback right now. Uh, we're scared to death for our, our people out there that, that uh, you know, they're, they're just animals, these ISIS folks. They, they, they have mass sex slave markets and they get anyone who's not their way of thinking and, and that's the fate of, of these thousands of children. So, so, you know, pray for those folks and, and just learn, learn about what we do and the answer about what you can do will come to you. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for the, the work that you're doing. I know you don't do it for us, but you do it for us. So it's respected, it's appreciated, and thank you for sharing. Thank you, man. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.